How do we know what we're told about Jesus is true? Wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after he lived? And how do we know it isn't just legends about a good teacher? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and more will answer in our lesson today entitled, Introduction to the New Testament, The Critical Importance of Correct Dating. The New Testament makes some extraordinary claims that the long-prophesied Messiah came into the world, lived, taught, died, and rose again to offer a restored relationship to God to all who believe in Him. For claims of such importance, naturally not everyone believed them then or now, and questions like these come up. Wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after the events recorded in them? In the time between the events and the recording of them, did myth and legends replace reality? Therefore, are the stories of the miracles, the resurrection of Jesus, just worshipful thinking? Also, shouldn't the books that were left out of the New Testament, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and others have been included? We'll answer these questions in two parts. Part one in this lesson, how the history of the documents, their collection internally and externally, show conclusively when they were written. Correct dating is the essential foundational fact that must be established because if a historical record, if a historical account was written by eyewitnesses within a few years of the events taking place, it has much greater reliability than something written hundreds of years after an event. We'll then do our next lesson in this series is an introductory lesson on the Gospels as we start reading through the New Testament. And then after I've introduced the Gospels to you, we'll do part two of this overall lesson where we're going to look at the New Testament non-canonical writings. In other words, those that are not included in our Bible, particularly what are known as the Gnostic quote-unquote Gospels and why they aren't included in our Bibles. Now, first of all, let's go into a very brief history of how we got the New Testament. The Christian church made a huge impact on the ancient world, and we'll see some non-Christian quotes on it shortly. But it would only be natural for the leaders of this early movement to write to the scattered churches who were forming as the new movement was growing, and they did. The earliest writings that form our New Testament were the letters James, then the letters of Paul, as you'll see when we get into that part of our reading. We'll go through them in chronological order. Then, as those who personally knew Jesus were fewer and fewer, people who knew him or knew those close to him wanted to write down an account having eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. That's how the Gospels came into being. The events took place first, but they were written down later, which makes dating them important to confirm the trustworthiness of what they record. Now, Luke describes this process in the introduction of the book that bears his name, and this is really important. He starts out by saying, Dear friend who loves God. In some translations, it says, Dear Theophilus, but that is actually the term lover of God. And so we don't really know if it was 
addressed to an individual person or just people in general who love God. He goes on, though, to say several biographies of Christ have already been written using as their source material the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses. However, it occurred to me that it would be well to recheck all these accounts from first to last and after thorough investigation to pass this summary on to you to reassure you of the truth of all you were taught. He goes on to write his gospel, which is an exacting, precise, and accurate account. Now, similar processes took place for the other books in the New Testament. Each was written for a specific reason, either as was Luke's, as an eyewitness biography of Jesus, or as a letter to Christian churches. Collections of these letters and biographies began to be saved by various groups and were gradually recognized as scripture, equivalent to the Old Testament, and passed down as a New Testament that we have in our Bibles today. That exact process is covered in the Bible 805 lesson on canonicity, and that's available at the link that is in your notes. If you're just listening to this, you can go to the Bible 805 website, www.bible805.com, and there is a section that has all of the different categories of lessons, and you will find that in the one on how we got our Bibles. But in this lesson, we're going to go into depth on how we date and verify the authenticity of these documents that forms the basis of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, and why they're included in our Holy Scriptures. Now, foundational in analyzing any historical document is when it was written. This is of ultimate importance because, obviously, the closer any document was written to when the events actually happened, that increases the likelihood that the events are true. A variety of writings from the time that these were written, in addition to the documents themselves, if they refer to them both in positive and negative ways, can be helpful. In other words, if other writers of the time uh, mention different things, mention the events, anything that gives us another time anchor, even if it says awful things about what was being written, can be very helpful. It takes hundreds of years for a historical figure to become the topic of myth. So if a religious figure correctly dating when the events of their lives were recorded is especially important. If nothing was written about them for hundreds and hundreds of years, as is the case, for example, with the history of Buddha. Um, nothing was actually written about him until 500 years after he lived. And so the early, even the earliest writings are very mixed in with uh, mythology and all of that kind of thing. However, if something's written within just a few decades after their life and death, as the Gospels were, it's very, very different how we analyze the truthfulness of it. But let's go on. Now, here's how we begin to date the documents of the New Testament. We compare them with dates outside of the documents themselves. And a key date in this is Paul's death. Church history, tradition, uh, Roman history, uh, just all sorts of things date conclusively that he died under Nero in either 67 or 68 A.D., and his death then is not mentioned in the book of Acts. It ends with him under house arrest when he wrote the prison letters. So it's logical to assume 
that the book of Acts, because it doesn't mention his death, obviously, was completed before 67 AD. The Gospel of Luke had to be written prior to Acts because Luke starts out Acts talking about the former letter that he wrote, which was the book of Luke. And it is agreed that it was probably the last synoptic gospel. So Matthew and Mark were written before it. So all of the gospels were probably written either during or sometime before the 60s AD. Obviously then, all of Paul's letters had to be written before 67 AD, which is when he died, obviously. Now, a second key date, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. If all were written before this time, it's incredibly important, as dating all the documents prior to 70 AD means they were written by eyewitnesses. Now, here is why I believe this is the case. No New Testament book, Revelation included, makes any mention of the destruction of the temple. It was an extraordinary event. It was a world-shattering event to all involved with the Jewish people and the new Christian faith. You need to read the Josephus and other histories to find out, to really realize how absolutely extraordinary it was. It just boggles my mind as someone who has, has studied a lot of history that people could even suggest that any of these books were written after. It was just too big of an event. Had it happened prior to the completion of the writing of the New Testament, most certainly that it would have been mentioned. Many lesser tragedies are mentioned, talked about, but this isn't. Current consensus among scholars today is that the entire New Testament was written prior to 70 AD because of this and many other reasons having to do with the construction of the documents themselves, which we're now going to look at. Now, how do we date manuscripts? We date manuscripts very quickly all the time without even realizing that we're doing it. If you could see the pictures here, again, if you're listening uh, just to the podcast of this, I have an obviously really old newspaper and a USA Today. When you contrast a newspaper from the 1880s and one from the 20th century, it's quite obvious what was written when. You don't need a graduate degree to tell you which is which. The paper the type, the color that it's, the, whether there's color or not used in it, the illustrations, they're all immediate indications of when something was created. Biblical manuscripts are no different, as the styles of writing and publication design are always changing. In fact, we are in the midst of a huge documentary shift today that future historians will use to date manuscripts, and that is we're shifting away from cursive writing. Already, a lot of younger people cannot read or write cursive. And in a generation or so, it will be illegible to most people. Future historians will be able to date handwritten documents based on if they're in cursive or not. Now, with that current example in mind, what are some of the differences in past manuscripts that enable us to date them correctly? Now, here are some of the criteria used to date the manuscripts, again, just like today. The paper that it's on, how the letters are formed, the use of colors. What, first of all, what were they written on? Papyrus, it was the earliest 
sort of um, paper or substrate or whatever you want to call it that the documents were written on. And it's very easy to see papyrus was made by mashing together these fibers. And you can see this cross-hatching on the paper very easily. Vellum or parchment was very smooth. That's a leather that's tanned. And when something was written on that, you don't have the cross-hatching. So you can see when that was used, and that was primarily used from the 300s on. Now, how the letters themselves are constructed. The early manuscripts are constructed in what's called uncial, and what this is, is this means that the letters are all capital letters, and that um, they're all the same size, same height, all of that sort of thing. Minuscule, where we have upper and lower case, that didn't develop at all until the early 3rd century, and it wasn't in used widely until the 8th century on. And then word spacing, early manuscripts, all the words just run together. Now, the illumination or illustration of pages was not used until much later, from, the one, from around 1000 to 1600 AD. Now, if you're looking at the video, you can see a very early manuscript that um, it's obviously on papyrus. It's got the uncial script. Everything's the same size. And it's most, um, just looking at it, you say, that's probably very early. And yes, it is. It is one of the Apostle Paul's writings. It, it is dated from between 150 to 225 AD, obviously a copy of it, but it was from one of the collections of manuscripts found in Egypt. And then there we have many early manuscripts, additional early manuscripts. Here are two that are manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Again, very early we can tell that they're papyrus because of the cross-hatching on the paper, the style of the letters, the words running together from both the 100s uh, excuse me, both uh, one of them is from around 200, and one, the very, we have a very early, early, early fragment of the Gospel of John from probably prior to 100 AD. Now, not only do we have fragments, but we have three complete Bibles that are very early. We have the Codex Sinaiticus that was discovered at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, and I have a picture of it, very clear, clean writing, but once again, the Uncial script, the letters all running together. Um, Constantine Tischendorf discovered this in 1844. It was in what's called a codex, which means a book as opposed to a scroll. Even if you have only a fragment, you can tell whether it was a codex or not. If it was written on the back, yes, it's a codex. It was pages written front and back. If it was a scroll, just a fragment, and there's nothing on the back, um, again, came from a scroll. Now, the codices survived so much better. The pages were protected. They didn't curl and crack. The leather pages, and then they uh, they were uh, done on, the, of course, the leather pages, on the parchment pages, and then heavy, heavy wooden covers. And that's why so many of them survived. Paper didn't come to Europe 
Europe until the 1400s and the printing press until the 1440s. But early codexes, again, uh, done on um, the basically leather pages with these heavy wooden covers, they survived quite well. Another codex, a complete Bible, is the Codex Vaticanus. Um, it is dated between 300 and 350. It This one comes from the Vatican Library. We're not sure how it got there, but um, it is a complete copy of the Bible. Now, when our Bibles, at our current Bibles, state that at the end of Mark and a couple other places, that what's in them was not found in the early manuscripts, what they're referring to is the Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Um, these early manuscripts do not have those later additions to them. There's one more, the Codex Alexandrinus, and this is from Alexandria, um, dated between 400 and 440 AD. Now, here's what's really important about it. It was given to King Charles of England in, now listen to this date, 1625. Now, Charles was the son of James, who's the one who authorized the King James Version, which was translated in 1611. Now, what this means is that he did not have this early Greek manuscript when the King James translation was made. That's why it um, is not nearly as accurate as actually some later translations that were made using these really early Greek translations. Later, they began to decorate, or they called it illuminate the Bible. And the lettering may be similar, but they began putting in all kinds of extra artwork and drawings and fancy stuff. Though this started in the a little after 1000, the examples here are from 1240 to 1260, and just show you how really fancy the decorations became. Now, just a bit of typographic trivia from the early 1300s. This particular manuscript shows the underlying markings that they wrote a pawn to do the different manuscripts. Usually they've faded away by the time we see the manuscripts, but here you can see lines underneath both on each individual line and then on each margin. Now what's kind of interesting about this is if you could properly make your line fit perfectly all the way from end to end, the way it should be, it was said to be justified or made right. And yes, that term comes from the same basic theological idea of being made right with God. But if you justified your line, it came out right. And we still use that same word justified text in describing typographic lines today. Now, a little pop quiz, and I will describe this to you if you are listening to this on the podcast. If you were shown this particular manuscript that has all sorts of illustrations on it, it's colored, it's um, in very beautiful lettering, but it's upper and lower case, when would you date it? Smooth vellum pages. Um, obviously, you'd say that's medieval. It's after the 1000s, and you'd be exactly right. It was written somewhere between 1250 and 1299 AD, and it's a section from the book of Matthew. Then if I showed you another piece that has a little crossed hatch in the background, um, it's got obviously written on papyrus, the NCL letters, the words all joined together. When would you say that's written? And obviously it's very early. 
175 or so. And yes, it is the end of the Gospel of Luke and um, the beginning of the Gospel of John, and it is dated again 175 AD or so. It's from the manuscript entitled P75, which is the shorthand for Papyrus 75. Now, we don't just have a few examples. We have thousands of them. And in your notes, I have a chart that many of you have probably seen in the past where it shows that some of the most famous pieces of history that we don't doubt at all, there is a very lengthy gap between when they were written and when we have copies of them. And for most of them, the history of Herodotus, Plato's works, uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have just eight to 10 copies. And we have 1,300 years from 1,000 to 1,300 years between when they were written and when we have a copy. With the New Testament, it is so different. At one of the last counts available, and they're finding new ones all the time, we have over 5,000 complete copies. And um, we have uh, plus over 15,000 in translation. And we have some fragments from 50 years after they were written, and many, many um, uh, complete books, and most of the New Testament within 200, 250 years after it was written. This is absolutely extraordinary. Some conclusions then on the manuscript evidence. When critics say that the biblical accounts were not written until hundreds of years after the events, their comments on late authorship are simply ignorant, as we have many manuscripts that by obvious textual evidence conclusively date them prior to 100 AD. Statements about later dating saying the Gospels are the result of the development of legend have no factual basis, but are the result of a philosophical view, not solid scholarship. Dating the manuscripts and what they record about Jesus based on textual evidence, it's a starting point. But there's a lot more evidence that we'll look at now. In addition to the manuscripts themselves, the dating of the content is also verified by the writings of the ancient church fathers, who we know from many sources lived after the early documents were written and referred to them. Just one example, Justin Martyr died around 165 AD, and he quoted the New Testament over 330 times. Now, obviously, he couldn't quote from something that happened prior to 165 AD if the stories about Jesus didn't develop until well after that. And he's not the only one. There are many, many other church fathers who, again, quote, extensively New Testament content, and they live, we know, from the early 100s on. To emphasize the obvious, when critics say that the New Testament was written hundreds of years after the life of Christ, they totally ignore that it was quoted for long before when they claim it was even written. Now, basic facts and timing of biblical history of Jesus are also verified by secular sources. Now, this gets really interesting because none of the following that I'm going to uh, quote their words, none of them were believers, but their accounts affirm the basic facts of the Christian faith, when they happened, and how they spread throughout the known world very early after the resurrection of Jesus, which took place in 33 AD. Tacitus, a Roman historian who lived from 55 to 120 AD, said, 
And I quote, Christus, the founder of the Christian name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Suetonius, a Roman historian who lived from 69 to 130 AD, said, As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. And then Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor of a province, and in his story, it's kind of touching because uh, the, the Christians were under persecution at that time, and he didn't quite know what to do to them. And here's what he writes to the Emperor Trajan. He said, I asked them directly if they were Christians. They used to gather on a stated day before dawn and sing to Christ as if he were a god. All the more I believed it necessary to find out what was the truth from two servant maids, which were called deaconesses by means of torture. Nothing more did I find than a disgusting, fanatical superstition. And you see, all of these, though not at all sympathetic to the Christian faith, confirm that it was going on and when it happened. Josephus and the testimony in Flavonium. Um, he witnessed, Josephus witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, and he wrote a Jewish history from the earliest times down to the history of James and John the Baptist. Now, the complete text following is sometimes disputed, but I've, and I've, when I've read the critiques of it, it's, it's kind of goofy because um, the people that don't agree with it, they don't agree with it based on, they don't, they, uh, when they don't agree that it was what he actually said, they just go, well, he couldn't have said this. They don't really have any reasons why that is, or when things were added, or what what was what, but they just don't agree with it. But here's what Josephus said, and regardless of whether you accept all of it, the core facts, I think, are very important. But I quote Josephus, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Again, you may or may not accept that Josephus wrote all of those things, but if nothing else, we can confirm that Jesus lived when he lived and what people believed about him from what he wrote. Again, one more, Celsus, who was, uh, who's really interesting. He was a very prolific writer against Christians. And though he was not a Christian, he confirms people, dates, events, all sorts of things, which what's interesting, he attributes them to reasons other than the Bible does. But he does confirm when and that they took place. Let me just quote some of what he said about John the Baptist. He said, if anyone predicted to us that the Son of God was to visit, he was one of our prophets and the prophet of our God. John, who baptized Jesus, was a Jew. 
And then on Jesus' miracles, he said, it was by means of sorcery that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed. Let us believe that these cures or the resurrection or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves, these are nothing more than tricks of jugglers. It is by means of certain demons and the use of incantations that the Christians appear to be possessed of miraculous power. On the Apostles. Jesus gathered round him ten or eleven persons of notorious character, tax collectors, sailors, fishermen. He was deserted and delivered up by those who'd been his associates, who had him for their teacher, and who believed he was a Savior and Son of God. On the crucifixion, Jesus accordingly exhibited after his death only the appearance of wounds received on the cross and was not in reality so wounded as he is described to have been. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying in all these quotes? He affirms much of the New Testament, though he ascribes different reasons for the events that took place. He says magic or demons or, or whatever, but he does not deny that they happened. The historical conclusions on the correct dating of the Gospels. Put aside for a minute the theological implications. In search for the historical Jesus, the biographies and other materials written about him in our New Testament, how solid is the picture based on thousands of manuscripts from the earliest days, written by eyewitnesses, basic facts confirmed by secular and antagonistic sources, and confirmed by 2,000 years of church history. The only honest, obvious conclusion is that the picture that we have of Jesus as presented in the Bible is historically accurate based on the confirmation of being written soon after he lived. What an individual does with that is an entirely different issue. The fact is that a man named Jesus lived in Palestine when the New Testament said he did, did the miracles described, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose from the dead, and so powerfully affected his followers that they immediately spread the news that this was the promised Messiah and forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation was possible through him. We can trust that what they say happened when they say it happened. The documents that verify this were written soon after the events and are the best attested to in the history of all religions. What a person does with these facts is a totally separate issue than the intellectually honest assessment of what happened and when it happened. For the one who's trusted Jesus as Savior, you can be assured that your faith has a firm foundation in our God who invaded history, who stepped into the world he created to live, die, and rose again to redeem us. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com, including, please go there, this great chart that if you haven't seen it before that has that contrasts all of the evidence that we have for the Gospels as opposed to other ancient writings. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word 
and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.